0: If you would, open your Bible to Matthew chapter 14, and possibly as you were coming in, you may have received one of those uh, half-page orange sermon notes if you want to pull that out. Uh, If you missed those and and like a copy later, you can grab one as as you're heading out, but if you've got that sermon note, I want you to be able to pull that out. We are in Matthew chapter 14, about halfway through that chapter, we're going to pick up with a couple of stories and carry forward kind of a contrast that we saw last week as well. Here's what I want to do uh, as we get started, though, kind of building on that last song that we sang and, and David's prayer there for us. Before we have a time to study this scripture, I, I feel like what we need to do right now is just, just take a moment and we are going to spend some more time in prayer, just time of reflection Time of asking the Lord to work in our hearts. I want to be able to pray over you, and then we are going to get into this this story, these stories here in this passage. Would you bow your heads with me right now, though? I want us to have want us to have a moment just to pray together here as as a church. I know uh, I know life can move fast. Uh, we'll be through here and be moving on to the next thing, and. and It's so easy for times of worship like this to get away from us. God, we come before you right now. We come before you to slow ourselves down, to slow our hearts down, to slow our minds down. God, to refocus on you. We don't want what we do in this room at this time and yeah, we don't want this to be disconnected from the rest of our lives, as if we come in here and we do this and then we just go on with life, God. But these times that we gather like this, these can be good times to refocus, to remember where our hope is found. God, I pray for people in the room right now who just feel exhausted, who feel emotionally and spiritually exhausted. God, people who might be dealing with with some deep anxiety, with physical pain in their lives, God, may they know your power and your presence. Father, in our lives, in our church, in our world, we are desperate, God, for a move of your spirit. God, that you would do what only you can do. God, we don't need more worldly success. We don't need more popular people. God, we need you to show your power and you to show your presence and you to receive the glory. God, would you bring healing? Would you bring hope? Would you change our lives and our church from the inside out? God, I pray that you would draw people to salvation. God, I pray that you would draw people back to you God, that we would not take gatherings of the church as a light thing, but we would come with joy and expectation. And God, that we would be a source of peace and love and good news in the world around us. God, thank you for this church. Thank you for what this group of people mean to me and to my family. And God, we give ourselves to you, and we pray, God, that you would do a powerful work in and through us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Emmaus, let me set the stage for you for these uh, end of chapter 14, beginning of chapter 15 uh, that we're going to look at this morning in in our, our time together of Bible study. Let me kind of set the stage for you. This last week, if you were on social media, particularly Facebook, or even watching some of the nightly news programs, there's a possibility that you saw the incredible story of Caleb Freeman being able to run again and complete his race, his cross country race with Newcastle. Just this incredible move of God's power and the miracle that he's done there in Caleb's life and the glory that the Freeman family is given to God through that whole experience. You saw a story like that of, of Caleb being able to, to complete that, that race. If you don't know Caleb's story, he was in a, in a terribly bad car accident several months ago. Didn't even look like he was going to live. If he lived, it doesn't look like he was going to walk. Now he's running again. God's given them a platform to share that story literally around the world. Now imagine, imagine this with me, because this will help make sense of the Bible verses we're going to look at. So here comes Caleb coming back from this incredible accident and going through this recovery and he finishes this race. Now imagine after the race, when all of these other runners came and gathered around him and finished the race, that somebody came up after the race and said, you know, actually in these, in these races, once someone finishes the race, they're, they're not able to go back out on the course and join other racers. They, they really shouldn't be doing that. And Caleb, your your little number thing—it was one all crooked, Um, you know—and your form, man, it just didn't look that great. Like I, you know, we're gonna have to take back that medal that we gave you for finishing the race. Like I I just—I don't don't think you can have that. That would be ludicrous. Like, here's this kid has come back, the power of God at work in his life. He's made this incredible recovery and someone is trying to call him on a technicality, or or they're trying to take away the power of what's happened because of some little thing that they picked off over here, we would say that doesn't match. Here's this scene of great power and great joy, and then you're trying to call out a couple of weird technicalities over here. That doesn't make sense. Now imagine this scenario. You take the worldwide growth of Christianity and people coming to know Jesus— By many accounts, now this this isn't secure data, but but by many accounts, the fastest growing church in the world right now is found in Iran, where people are coming to faith in Christ in huge numbers. You see in this growth of the church, not in buildings like this, but, but in the church underground. You see all these people coming to faith in Christ. Now imagine if you have this scene of power and beauty where these people are coming to faith in Christ, and then... Someone from the American church says, yeah, but you guys, you're, you're not singing the right songs. <laughs> and uh, you, you're, really not, you're really not wearing the right clothes when you gather to worship. And, I mean, that's cool that you're meeting underground in a house, but you really should be meeting, you know, in a real church building. You see how that works, right? You have this scene of incredible power, of God doing these amazing things, and then somebody over here comes and talks about something that just doesn't seem to matter very much. Here's what we get today in the Gospel of Matthew. There's going to be a contrast between the way chapter 14 ends and the way chapter 15 begins. And what we're going to see, and this is the fresh word that I hope God gives you today as we begin to look at the word here. What we're going to see is when you take the power of God and you set it beside human rules and traditions, those human rules and traditions don't look very powerful and they don't look very important. And so what we have to decide this morning, Emmaus, do we want to be water walkers or do we want to be hand washers? All right, that's the question. Do we want to be water walkers or do we want to be hand washers? Here's how this works. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Just after Jesus has fed the 5,000 plus the women and children, verse 22, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. So you see Jesus continuing to care for the disciples, to care for the crowds, but he sends them away because in the midst of this ministry, he knows he has to remain connected to the Father, which is a great reminder for every one of us. You might be involved in a lot of ministry projects, but if we lose that connection with God the Father, we're never going to be able to do what God has called us to do. And so you see Jesus himself drawing away here, saying, I need to connect, I'm going to go and spend this time, this night with the Father. Middle of 23, When evening came, he was there, Jesus was there all alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Now, what this verse is meant to do is to show the difficulty that the disciples are getting into, how hard the situation is that the disciples are getting into. It's also going to help us from saying crazy things in a few minutes about, well, the boat was really close to the shore, so when Jesus walked on the water, he was really just walking on stuff that was just under the water. No, no. The boat is out in the middle of the water. It's a huge storm. This is an incredibly difficult situation that's going on here. So it's being set up. What's going to happen as a result of this situation? Look at verse 25, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. Okay, what's going on in in this set of verses here? When it says there in verse 25, in the fourth watch of the night, that means from 3 a.m., To 6 a.m. Now we don't know in that time frame what's being referred to. If you've been out hunting or you've been out early in the morning, you know that that time just before the sun comes up can sometimes feel like the coldest, darkest time of the whole night, but then you have a little bit of light that starts coming in, so we don't know exactly where the disciples are in this period, but it's somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. What it does tell us is they've been battling these conditions all night. So they're exhausted. They've been trying to get through the storm. They've been trying to survive out on the sea. They're exhausted. They're in a hard situation. In the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Now, I don't know what your feeling is toward lakes, but I've shared my feeling with you about lakes. Uh, I don't do well with water that you can't see into. I just don't like it. Um, so many of you are so kind and you invite me to the lake and I try to come up with nice ways to say no because it really just freaks me out and I, I don't particularly like it. But uh, I don't do well with water that you can't stand to. In the ancient world, a sea or a huge lake area like this, it was considered to be a place of evil, a place of chaos, to which I say amen. Like that is that is true. So uh, it was considered to be a place of, of chaos and evil and it was even considered to be a place where, where evil spirits would exist. So the disciples, they're exhausted, they're in a storm, they're on the sea, and they see a figure coming toward them. This is not hard for them to figure out. It's a ghost. It, it's an evil spirit that has come up out of this lake to come and visit them. Now, last week, we had a decapitated head on a platter, This week we have a ghost. So this is timed perfectly. Uh, October in the United States. We're coming right up on Halloween here. We've got plenty of Halloween in these stories. You've got this ghost walking up. What happens in this situation, though? Verse 26 When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost, an apparition, an evil spirit, and they cried out in fear. What Matthew is trying to get you to see here is how afraid the disciples are what a bad situation they find themselves in now the question is what happens as a result of this well look at your bible here verse 27 immediately jesus spoke to them spoke into this difficult situation saying take heart it is i do not be afraid man these three phrases are so good If you find yourself in a difficult situation in life, remember these three phrases. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. What's going on here? The first phrase, take heart. Be of courage, hang in there. This is the same phrase that Jesus used when he spoke to the man who was paralyzed and lying on the mat and his friends had brought him to Jesus, take heart, he uses the same phrase there. He uses the phrase when he interacts with a woman who had the bleeding and, and she needed physical healing, he uses that same phrase saying, I'm, I'm with you, it is I. Okay, there's two things presumably going on here when Jesus says, it is I. Here's the first thing. He wants to make clear to the disciples that a ghost is not coming toward them, that it's a person. So he, he identifies himself and says, it is I, I'm, I'm coming toward you. But most likely, and, and this is one of those things, I want to be careful in how I present this, but it seems there's something very purposeful going on here. The wording that Jesus uses here is I am. I am is the, is the exact words that he uses. In the Gospel of John, in the New Testament, many times you get this I am phrase that Jesus uses. But not only that, the New Testament use of the phrase I am points back to God's revelation of himself in the Old Testament as we might say Yahweh, or I am who I am. So when Jesus is coming to the disciples here, Let's admit, they probably in the boat don't get this connection immediately because they're terrified, they're exhausted, they're afraid. But what Jesus is saying to the disciples is, I am is here. (laughs) It is I. God himself is with you now. You do not have to be afraid because I'm with you. Which gets us to that final phrase When God is with you, when he is with you in the midst of that storm, in the midst of that difficulty, what's the result of that? You don't have to be afraid. So you get something like Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God's presence eliminates the fear. Isaiah 41.10, this idea of fear not, for I am with you. What helps us deal with fear in life? Let's take your situation right now. You're in the midst of a very difficult, hard situation. How do you deal with fear in life? God's presence and God's power makes all the difference. And so when Jesus comes to the disciples in this situation, he wants them to know who is speaking to them. It's God and all of his power and he has come to be with his people in the midst of their difficulty. Let that be good news to you. Whatever you're facing in life, God's power and God's presence is what eliminates the fear that can hold us back. Now, what did the disciples do? Well, good old Peter comes to the rescue in verse 28. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, uh, we're not gonna get into greek grammar here but but there's different ways that the word if works in the greek language this is one of the ways where he is saying if it is you and i believe it is buried in that language the way it's put together is an assumption of and i believe this is who's speaking to me so lord if it is you and i believe it is command me to come to you on the water some people say that peter's request here is wrong it's rash he shouldn't have made this request I don't think so, because Jesus doesn't correct him for his request. What does Jesus say? He says, come, come to me. This kind of mirrors him saying in the the previous story, bring the food to me. Come to me. I'll, I'll take care of it. So come. So what happens in verse 29? Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water and came to Jesus. Here's the cool thing. What gives Peter the courage to get out of the boat and begin to walk toward Jesus? It's his understanding of who is with him. He recognizes Jesus' identity. He recognizes that Jesus is with him. And for Peter, that eliminates all concerns. He says, I'm in. I know who is here. I know who's speaking to me. I'm going to walk out in faith. Anytime we come up against this story in the New Testament, I'm always hesitant to kind of overdo this application, but, but hear me out on this. I, I don't think it's cheesy. I think it's important that you hear this. If you truly believe what you say you believe about Jesus, if I truly believe what I say I believe about Jesus, about his power and his presence, then we have to get out of the boat. <laughs> if we believe that Jesus is who he said he really is, that he is the son of God, that he has come with all the power of God, that he is God with us, that he doesn't just walk on the water, but he created the waters. If we believe that's true, there's no way you can just drift along in the boat. You have to get out of the boat. You have to go after him. That's my encouragement to every one of us this morning. Don't drift. Don't be apathetic. Don't be lethargic. If we believe that Jesus has overcome sin and death, there is nothing that holds us back. We have to get out of the boat. We have to be active in our faith. So what happens to Peter? Verse 30. When he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. What gets him in trouble? He looks at the circumstances. He looks at the difficulties. He takes his focus off Jesus. And in that moment, he begins to sink. And what does he do when he sinks? He beats himself up for being a loser. No, he doesn't beat himself up for being a loser. What does he do? He cries out, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. Verse 31, Jesus immediately reaches out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, this is a gentle correction. It kind of hits us harsh when we read it, but it, it's a gentle correction here of Peter. O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And the word doubt there just means double-minded. Why, why were you divided in your mind? Why did you say you trusted me and then you turned and you focused on the wind and you stopped trusting me? Why, why did you doubt? Let this be an encouragement to you, Emmaus, this morning. If you struggle with doubt, if you struggle with this difficulty of what it looks like to follow Jesus, what does Jesus do to Peter in his time of doubt? He doesn't rebuke him. He reaches down to him. He comes to him in his time of doubt. It's easy for us. It's easy for us to face doubts. It's easy for us to say, you know what? I've screwed up. I've messed up. God must not want anything to do with me. That is the moment that God comes near to you. If you struggle with doubts, if you struggle with being held back because of mistakes you've made in your past, or you feel like, you know what, I've doubted God, He's not going to want to care about me, He does. And in fact, He comes to you right in the middle of that doubt, right in the middle of that difficulty when you cry out to Him. Verse 32, When they got into the boat, the wind ceased so many connections between this story and the one back in Matthew chapter 8 of Jesus calming the storm. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying truly you are the Son of God. Now back in Matthew chapter 8 when we had the story of Jesus calming the storm, at the end of that story, the disciples look around and they're marveling, They're, they're amazed at what happened, they say, what kind of person is this who can calm the storm? Now they've spent a little bit more time with Jesus, and this time the storm happens, and they don't say, what sort of man is this? What do they say here? They say, truly, you are the Son of God. This shows how every time the disciples experience the power of God, they learn more about who God is. Guess what happens in our lives? Let this be good news to you. Every time you struggle, Every time you go through a difficulty, every time you go through an experience where you learn more about God's power and presence, you're able to worship him in a new way. When we don't go through challenges, when we don't go through struggles, when we don't step out on faith, we're never finding ourselves in a place where we need the Lord to step in and in some way we never fully experience all that he is and all that he wants to show us of who he is. Here's kind of just a basic Bible principle. God doesn't waste any of your experiences. He does not waste any of your experiences. What you go through, God uses those experiences to show you more of himself, and in response to that, we find ourselves worshiping him more passionately. We find ourselves worshiping him more clearly because we see more of who he is. Stepping out in faith, Experiencing the God's power drives us to worship him, to worship Jesus as the son of God. Then what happens here? Verse 34, Jesus doesn't tell the disciples to go back because they messed up. What does he do? When they crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick, and they implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. What happens? The ministry and the miracles of Jesus continue, and he doesn't go out and get new disciples. He just keeps taking the ones that are trying to learn and that are on the journey with him. And chapter 14 ends with Caleb crossing the finish line in his race. God is good. God's power. Man, what could go wrong in chapter 15? Ah, well, let me show you. (laughs) Okay, chapter 15, verse 1. Then the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And one of the disciples turns around to the Pharisees and says, Yo, bro, we're walking on water. We're not caring about washing our hands right now. Like, we're breaking laws of physics. We don't care if we're breaking traditions at this point. There's something else happening here that is bigger than you could ever imagine. Who are these Pharisees and scribes? They're a group of people who, let's be honest, let's not paint them in the wrong light. They do care very much about holiness. They, They care about it. They don't understand it, but they care about it. And they care about understanding the word of God, but they do not like the new thing that Jesus is doing. They don't like the way that the power of God is coming through Jesus. They don't like the things that Jesus is saying about the kingdom of God. And so you find the Pharisees and the scribes opposing Jesus, and so they come up and they say, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Elementary kids. In the building, raise your hand. All elementary kids, elementary kids, raise your hand. When your parents tell you to wash your hands this afternoon, please wash your hands. This is not what this is talking about, okay? It is good that you wash your hands for hygiene. There is something else going on right here in this story. What does it mean when it says tradition of the elders? Here's what it means. With the Pharisees and the scribes, what grew up around the scripture was this oral tradition this oral teaching that was passed down uh, interpretations about the bible and what happened is they came up with extra laws extra rules that were meant to provide a protection that if you kept these rules and these these traditions then you wouldn't have to worry about breaking the law of god so here's some human rules here's some man-made traditions And if you want to follow God, you really need to follow these human traditions, these human laws that that were built up around the word of God because they'll become a hedge. They'll keep you from breaking the law of God. What does Jesus say to this in verse 3? Jesus doesn't answer their question until verse 20 because usually when Jesus was asked a question, you know what he did? He asked a question back. (laughs) So he answers them in verse 3, and why do you... Break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. Here's what had happened. They added extra rules that were supposed to keep people from breaking the commandments of God. Many times these extra rules, they would take regulations for the priests or the sacrifices, and they would impose them on regular people. Um, and so they made up these, these rules and traditions. But here's what had happened. In the process They were using some of their rules and traditions so as not to have to follow the laws that God had already given them. They were using them to get around things. Because you find an example in verse four. Verse four, Jesus says, God has actually commanded you, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, verse five, if anyone tells his father or his mother, hey, what you should have gained from me, <laughs> in other words, me helping you out, that's actually been given to God. He need not honor his father. For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Now, interestingly, later in the New Testament, in First Timothy, you find something very similar, where it seems like people in the church, people who are claiming to be followers of, of Jesus, They were neglecting to care for their family because they said, Oh, this money, these resources, they're dedicated to the things of God. Mom and dad, you'll have to find your own retirement home. Um, You'll have to figure out how to handle this on your own. I've got other things over here I'm dealing with. Jesus says, No, you've been given commandments about honoring your father and your mother and caring for the people in your life. You can't say, this is our tradition about how we use our money. It's over here, and in the process, neglect your family. You've made up a rule, and by keeping that rule, you're actually breaking a command that God has already given you. Then Jesus really goes to work in verse 7. Verse 7, he says, You hypocrites. A hypocrite is someone who looks good, sounds good on the outside, but completely different person on the inside. Sometimes different in public than, than they are in private. You hypocrite. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you. No surprise that Matthew is using an Isaiah prophecy. This is his way, this is his pattern. What's his prophecy? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain, so it's worthless how they worship me, Because they are teaching as doctrines. They are teaching as God's commands the commandments or the rules of men. So they're acting like hypocrites. They're looking good on the outside, but inside they're a mess. And they're making up human rules and saying these are actually God's commandments. Hear me out on this. Hear me out on this. Hear me out on this. In church life, I know we come from all kinds of backgrounds in this room, but many of us are gonna come from a fairly similar background. When you are raised in church, the lines sometimes start to blur between, is this a command of God, or is this just a human tradition and a man-made rule? And we start to blur those lines sometimes about what does it look like to really know and follow the commands of God Or is this a rule and tradition that people have made up? We kind of have to ask ourselves a question here. Where do these man-made traditions and and rules come from? Why, Why do we end up in this type of church world? And let's be honest, let's just be really honest with ourselves. This is often what turns people off to the things of God. They're not turned off by the power of Jesus. They're turned off by what are perceived as man-made religious rules, man-made traditions that get put in the place of God. Oftentimes, these man-made traditions, they usually start with good intentions for holiness, a desire that we would be holy people, that we would honor the Lord. But traditions and rules can quickly turn into a prideful desire for power and control. So if we're really going to be a holy people in this church, we need to put some extra rules in place to make sure that people live the way that God has called them to live. And you understand the danger there, right? Because at that moment, it's no longer the word of God that we are submitting ourselves to. Now it's human laws and human traditions that are being put in place. And we find ourselves where we no longer truly trust God's word, We no longer trust God's Spirit to do His work. We no longer trust the gift of the church gathered around us to help us make wise decisions about what it looks like to follow Scripture. If you've ever worked at a job where the policy book was like 100 pages long, Because every time somebody made one mistake, they made up a new policy or a new rule to handle that one mistake that could have been corrected with just a a gentle word of truth of, hey, let's not do this. But instead, a new policy is made, a new rule is made. And before you know it, you have this huge list of rules and traditions that have nothing to do with the original mission of the organization or the business. It gets built up. Traditions and rules are great gifts, but they are terrible gods. Because they will suck the life out of your organization, or your business, or frankly, your church. So what happens next in these verses? Verse 10. So Jesus calls the people to him and says, Hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles the person. So it's not about washing your hands or what food you eat. It's about what comes out of your life. Verse 12. The disciples came, this is great in verse 12. The disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Jesus is like, uh, hashtag unbothered, not bothered. Um, 13, he answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Leave them alone, they're blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, "Uh, Hey, could you explain that parable to us? And he said in verse 16, Are you also still without understanding? This is kind of going back to that parable language as, as the Lord speaks to them in parables, they begin to understand more of the kingdom of God. Verse 17, Jesus explains it to them Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? And yep, that means exactly what you think it means, um, is expelled. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this is actually what defiles a person. So your holiness is not based on if you wash your hands or eat the right food, it's what comes out of your life. Verse 19, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Okay, let's try to summarize Jesus' response here with just a couple of, a couple of statements. What, what is Jesus trying to get at here? Could you guys bring up the next slide with the bullet points, kind of the summary statement there? What is Jesus trying to get at here? Jesus is saying that purity and holiness Don't come from human rules and traditions about washing and eating, but purity and holiness comes from hearts that have been transformed by faith and worship leading to godly words and actions. Let me make a quick uh, explanation here so so I'm not misunderstood. Sometimes when we talk about this set of verses in the Bible, here's what happens. Someone hears rules and traditions are bad, Jesus says, do whatever you want. No, that's not what's going on in here. Human traditions and rules can quickly take us away from the power of God, but Jesus is not saying live however you want. He is saying live in a way that flows from a transformed life. Don't go around trying to live with the right outward actions when inwardly you're a mess. That is not true religion. Truly experience the power of God is when you're transformed in your heart and that flows out in the way you speak and the way you live. Alright, so here's what we want to get at. We want to watch out for things that take us from water walking to hand washing. Why would you worry about hand washing when you've been called to walk on water? How, How do you get yourself in that situation? Here's a couple of things that we need to watch out for as a church. Number one, Watch for misplaced priorities, especially when you find yourself, as a church person, more frustrated that somebody broke a church rule than whether or not they truly came to know the power of Jesus, okay? So when we find ourselves, our feathers getting ruffled because somebody didn't play the church game quite right, man, we've gotta watch out for that because here's a slope that is so dangerous. The slope goes from mission to ministries to maintenance, to memorials and memories. Here's what I mean. We have been given a mission by the God of the universe to share the greatest news that anybody could ever imagine. And it's not us having to sell it, it's the power of God at work. Here is the mission that is worth giving everything we have to. Hey, you know what? We should build some programs and ministries to help us carry out that mission. Okay, uh, You know what? Man, that program, wow, that thing is really great. We need to make sure we maintain that so that thing never goes away. You know what? All we're doing is talking about the program that we ran 25 or 30 years ago, and all we care about is making sure we hold on. You see the danger here, right? Before you know it, we have given ourselves as a church to maintaining ministries instead of advancing the very mission that God has given us. And quickly, we build up human traditions and human rules that take us away from the power and the presence of God. But what have we been called to as part of God's kingdom? What are the kingdom connections in this? That we would trust and worship Jesus above everything else, that He is our focus that we put God's word and God's people as more important than any tradition that we like or any rule that we make up in the church. There's kind of a cheesy way to say this. We need to sacrifice our preferences and our references. We all have things we prefer in church, and we all have our references, like, hey, they did it like this at my other church. Well, you're not at that church anymore. You're here. Or "They, they really did it like this back in the day. Well, we don't live in that day anymore. We live now. We're sacrificing those things And we're saying we're going to give ourselves to proclaim and display Jesus from a transformed heart as we live by faith. Emmaus, hear me out on this. I don't want to fill a role, and you don't want to fill a seat. We want to fulfill the mission that Jesus has given us. And let us not offer a hurting world human Traditions and man-made rules when what they need is the power of the one who walks on water, who saves the broken, who transforms lives. Let us give ourselves to that because it's the power and the presence of Jesus that makes all the difference in the world. Would you pray with me? God, we believe, we believe that the power to transform lives is not found in any program we put together. It's not found in any strategy we put together. And there is nothing wrong. We realize with programs and strategies, there's a place for those. But the power is found in the name of Jesus. God, I pray if there's anybody in this room who has been sh- turned off to the message of Christianity because of human traditions, or man-made religious rules. God, I pray that you would set them free of that this morning. Let them focus on who Jesus is and what he's done for them. God, that they would trust in you this morning. God, protect us as a church. We know how quickly it is to get in a rut. We know how easy it is to get in a rut. But God, we want to give ourselves to what matters. And we know that begins with every one of us in our heart. These are easy things to say, but they are hard things to do. And so, God, we give ourselves to you right now. Father, as we sing, as we respond, would this time of worship be honoring to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.